Welcome to the Tim Biscuit Podcast. Before we go on with today's podcast, I just want to give a massive shout out and a massive um, thanks to our sponsor, which is Rip It Up Horror. Um, you can find them on Instagram and Twitter. I will put all the details in the description below. What they basically do is they get like toys like Buzz Lightyear and sort of mess them up, look and make them look horror and like things like that. So go check them out. If you use the code TB3, a capital T, capital B3, you'll get 10% off everything to do so just do that and you'll get yourself a cool horror thing but as i say i'll put all the details about that in the description so it's been about a month two months two months since i've done the last podcast so i've, I've been busy i've started drumming again so um I've, I've been busy so we have a new guest and her first name's Lindsay, and i'm going to attempt to say her surname is burra is that correct <laughs> Everyone gets it wrong though. It's actually Bauer, but don't worry because I would have got it completely wrong initially as well. So that's absolutely fine. <laughs> so we did meet through a mutual friend on Twitter who's been on the podcast, and she's a kink worker. And I said, "Is there anybody else who wants to come onto the podcast?" And she suggested you to me. Um, the reason I think she suggested you is you've had a quite interesting life. You've um, You've wrote a book that's coming out, um, and it's quite deep. You've you sent me a few bits and bobs to read. Um, some of that I found it hard to read, but we did discuss that. Um, but do you want to tell me a bit about the book, a bit about where you've just been? Because I've been following your Instagram, not in a creepy way, but I've been following your Instagram, <laughs> and it looks like you've had an awesome time. So there you go. Go in. Uh, like, introduce yourself. Oh, <laughs> uh, hi. Yeah, so my name's Lindsay Bauer, and... Um, yeah, like my primary thing is um, I'm a historian and I used to do archaeology, although I haven't done that for a few years, obviously because of COVID and stuff. But yeah, I'm totally looking forward to getting back to a dig at some point. But that's more of a, like a casual thing now, uh, like a hobby thing, just because it's hard to get paid work in archaeology. But yeah, I love history. I've always loved history. Sorry, I'm going to try not to waffle on about history too much, but I think um, like the first chapter, the first books I remember reading, actually sitting on the loo, <laughs> reading, one of the best places to like read a book is on the loo or in the bath, um, and it was like a factual book about Henry VIII's wives, and I can't remember how old I was, I, was, I know I was little, because I think I learned to read like, quite quickly because I was a bit of a nerd. Um, but I was little and I was reading this book, and it was a book that you got, my parents got it, um, if you filled up your car with petrol at the local garage, I think it's like Shell. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to mention Shell. You can say what you want. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's one of those things where they used to collect coupons every time you filled up your car. And um, yeah, so they collected these coupons and then they got this free book, which was all about, it's like quite a salacious book, all about Henry VIII's six wives. Yeah, and I remember sitting on the loo and reading it when I was little and I was like really fascinated. And that's kind of like kick-started my like history love so yeah so my um one of my sort of like main life things is my history phd um and that's at bristol university and i've just finished my second year and yeah i've just been to um venice florence and rome to do some research um but i'll talk about that in a minute and then i also do like art modeling which i really love and um, that takes me all over the place um and that's to like supplement my student PhD in my, you know, my student loan and stuff. Art um, modelling. You say art modelling. What sort of art modelling do you do? Is it so? It's <laughs> it's a still life, isn't it? So you basically go there, get naked, or I'm, I'm presuming you go naked and people draw you. 
<laughs> yes, it's everything. So um, yeah, I'd work for uh, with 40 different um, like uh, venues and uh, yeah, it's all very professional and it's um, so sometimes it's just portraits, so just your face. Uh, sometimes it's clothes, so uh, it can be clothes as in normal clothes or it can be clothes as in like, I think they call it cross crop, which is where you're dressed in uh, like a costume and it's, um, the idea is like you're recreating a painting. So maybe like one of Degas ballerina uh, paintings, so you're like dressed as a ballerina and then you get into a pose and then artists can sketch you or paint you. Um, so I've done that before where I've been, um, I've been in the same pose for like six hours with breaks um, and then painted um, and then also yeah yeah I do do like life drawing so that's obviously with your kit off <laughs> and uh, the first time I did it because I'd always wanted to do it so I think I was like I grew up in a really um, uh, I'm trying to think of how to describe it because you know I feel like a lot of respect for it but I grew up in a, like a really strict religion like a Christian yeah, religion and I don't think well, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been allowed to do something like life drawing. And and then I got married and I was uh, teaching, and you couldn't really like I know it, it would have caused problems if I'd been life modelling before. Whereas now I can do it because I was a secret exhibitionist. It's just been like so much fun. I've loved it, and it really helps you to be uh, relaxed with your body and. Um, yeah, and not to be embarrassed about like nudity or um, yeah, or, like any bits of your body. You know, it's just a body, and the artist is so respectful and appreciative. <laughs> not in a perfect way, <laughs> not in a weird way, but just I was, treat, treat you I, Sorry. Yeah. I, no, no, it's cool. I was just about to say, what happens if like you get an itch, uh, like you have to switch yourself or. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes like, the things that you get sometimes are like you'll get, yeah, you'll get like a twitchy nose or like a cough, like a tickly cough. But obviously if you do anything like, if you have anything like that, it makes you want to be very drunk, makes you want to move. Or like if you've got a cough, you can like put your hand to your mouth. But you can't because you've got to like maintain the same pose. Like you can't move at all. Sometimes for like the longest poses I've held have been for an hour. Um, that, that's quite good. And they're normally like sitting in line poses. But um, yeah, they can typically do anything from like 30 minutes. But yeah, so if you <laughs> can't see your demon facing. But yeah, no, it's, it's like really good. But I've worked with so many lovely artists. So where I've worked for that has been, um, yeah, I work at uh, some university, yeah, universities in terms of like the art departments. So I've worked with animation students where I was doing like loads of 30 second poses, um, like dressed in <laughs> a red latex hat <laughs> and like heels and like holding a trident. <laughs> and like I had ears and uh, stuff. And that was for, uh, they were yeah animation students and they were doing like superheroes. So they're doing like, like Catwoman and things like that. So that was really good fun. And then I um, uh, sat as a portrait uh, sketch for um, a brilliant oil painter called Tom Richards in Florence and Tom's English but based over in Florence and he's yeah he gets commissioned for like thousands of pounds for his oil paintings and he's just like an amazing yeah he's just such an amazing oil painter but he's such a nice guy and um, he, he's had a really interesting life because like he's eaten and um, and then he paints for all of the he's like so down to earth he paints uh, these uh, like tend to be quite wealthy people from all over the world so 
like you've got these incredible stories of being like flown to the Rikers Museum in the middle of the night and having the whole Rikers Museum shut down for him and his like art patrons to look around um, for several hours and just because these um, art patrons commission a painting of themselves from him and then um, they like to um, you know talk to him about their lives and their experiences and sometimes he gets to have experiences because they're grateful for their oil paintings so he's like he's such an interesting guy and then yeah and then I do a lot of work for a lot of art modeling for St Ives Wall of Painting and I also do sculpture school so I, I do sculptures in bronze you keep yeah, dropping so, out I love so, sorry you keep dropping oh in and oh, out oh I'm so sorry am I it might be my Wi-Fi. Is that going to be all right, Rick? Have you got yeah. enough so far? No, yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, like as I say, it's like all unedited, so it like is what it is. So yeah, all good. <laughs> I just I just thought I'd better tell you in case you can get into a better position in. Yeah, sorts, I think this is the best one. I've got like a little granite cottage, uh, and so sometimes the signal's a bit crappy, but I think this is like the best place for me to talk to you. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right that's fine just take you back to the history part you like sort yeah. of said your first book was history and you was a you know you read on some isn't isn't there a favorite part of history that you're more drawn to is it like sort of like medieval is it like world war one world war two roman what sort of time period isn't like your favorite yeah i think it's kind of more the people i'm so sorry if i turn off my notifications i lose my sound so every time that's maybe what it is. Um, yeah, I. Oh, I'm, do you know how I? I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm such a granny. It's alright. It's not a problem. <laughs> if you don't mind that occasional sound, we can just carry on. Uh, just keeps it real. Um, yeah, like it's more for me. It's more about people. So like, I really love the Roaring Twenties because it's like you really get that sense of like after World War One and obviously before World War Two, although they didn't know if that was impending. But that sense of people just like really going crazy and letting their hair down after a bit like you know post COVID. Um, so I love I love it when people you get like real people's lives and all the crazy things they got up to because you just realise that throughout time it doesn't matter like what age it is. So in the Victorian times when I think people tended to be quite prim and proper, but you know there's always I, I was going to say like an underbelly, but it's not even an underbelly. It's just like how people really are. So you've got the um, the exterior that people, you know, everybody presents generally, especially if you're in sort of professional life, you know, I don't know, like if you're a solicitor or a judge or something like that, or a surgeon, you've got your professional identity, but then everybody's got their other side to them, their sort of interior side. And so like throughout all of the centuries, there's always been like really interesting times and also like times when um, people, you know, you've just got these incredible people that just really stand out as trailblazers. So, yeah, like I go through phases of, you know, when I was little, I really like the Tudors for sort of obvious juicy reasons. And then, like, I love um, some of the stuff from the classics, like the Romans, Greeks, and then, uh, like, Georgians are really interesting. Um, yeah, because they were just like, there's some really wild, <laughs> naughty Georgians. And then um, I don't just like the naughty <laughs> characters in history, but yeah, I just find it really, you know, and then you think of like the war poets. I like, I love like, stories of women in World War II. I, I guess, like, especially, like, I, I'm not just a big ge sort of gender historian. Like, I like men and women's stories, or like, I guess I should say now all genders. 
that um be very of... careful of what you say about genders at the minute because there's a yeah, lot going no, on. I feel, well when I say about men and women I kind of mean like I'm like completely non-judgmental hello hello ah. oh can you hear me yeah as like i said it, it yeah. just keeps it just keep dropping out every like like every oh, now and again sorry. um yeah no i'm completely like uh supportive of everything to do with gender and gender transitioning and identity so yeah i i mean i guess i like talk about men and women but i mean you know i mean like every you know every gender um but, it's certainly a hot yeah, take like, um, at the minute. Yeah, definitely. And I, but you know, I think it's like it's like us. Like when I was at uni, I studied like sexuality and history, and um, you know, you just realise there are times in history where ideas about um, things, such as categories like sexuality, like gender, are quite fluid, and so you know, we have to be open to embrace change. And I think I always try to be. I think my nature is not to be judgmental about anything, but to try and just be curious and understanding. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's all sort of like you can be is like listening to other people's opinions and like make your own mind up and decisions from that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think and I think doing the bit, I'll talk about the book in a, in a second. Um, yeah, because just really quickly to say the other thing I do is I, um, I've got like three daughters as well, but they're like quite, uh, they're a bit older now. So like I'm kind of feel, I had them when I was, I described it as really pretty young. Um, so now it's brilliant because they're all happy and I'm able to like crack on with stuff that I really, really love. Um, but yeah, I work uh, one day a week in Waterstones um, in the bookshop, which, um, yeah, that's like really good in a completely different way. Um, and then also it's given me insight into books, obviously, and publishing. Mm. And yeah, I've written this massive book about women's true stories, and it's um, modern women. Um, it's all about their lives going horribly wrong, and then how they kind of rebuilt their, their lives. So it's, it's ultimately a really positive book, um, but it's just literally going through the printing and publishing stage now. So it will be ready to buy and to buy online as well from, or buy online by, I mean, like through Amazon and Kindle um, in August. So it's been like a massive uh, project over the last two and a half years. But that's how I got to meet the amazing Melissa Todd, who you spoke to before. Yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we paused. <laughs> yes. I'm yeah. I'm I, I I don't know why it keeps dropping, but like my end seems to be okay. So it's maybe your granite cottage. Yeah, I think so. I could try talking to you outside. Could so do. So I get my laptop outside. Let's just yeah, try that. Bear with me. Let me carry you outside. Don't drop me. <laughs> I've got good biceps at the moment. So <laughs> sorry, my dog is coming out as well, and he can be a bit barky sometimes. <laughs> But hopefully he'll be fine. Are we there? Where have we gone? Hello? Hello? Oh, Rick, can you... I can, but you keep dropping out again. Oh, I'm back. Um, I'm back was um yeah do you think this is going to be okay for your podcast i think so yeah yeah go on we'll like go from there 
yeah, let's just carry on. So I'm yes. so sorry, and I'm sorry to listen right. listeners who are struggling. It's not a problem, not a problem at all. <laughs> but you know, it's just like real life, isn't it? Things are. So, do you want me to talk about the book, also to my um, PhD, or what would you like? I think if you go for the book and integrate and like integrate your PhD with them, like the book, because as I say, you have sent me a few snippets of the book and it's quite heavy reading yeah. in some parts so if you want to explain to people what the book's about and why you actually wrote it and yeah. how upset did you get um, doing some of the stories especially from you know some of the stories that you've got I mean it must have been hard yeah I think um so I was inspired to write the book because like I'd had a couple of times in my life where um, things have felt completely out of control where you know a few things have happened but you tend to get like not just one big thing going wrong but it seems to be like a like a triple whammy or <laughs> like lots of things all at once go kind of completely pear-shaped and then you just kind of are floundering because you just kind of think it's like you know literally like a hand grenade going off in your life and you just you know you, you just are waiting for the dust to settle but you don't know how it's going to settle and how you can like recalibrate your life and so um I just thought after the second time that happened to me so the first time was in my early 20s and the second time was yeah a bit later on um and like both times my life has recalibrated in the most brilliant ways but and in like far better ways although that's kind of a bit weird but um at the time you can't you know you almost can feel a bit suicidal because your life can feel like it's completely imploded so much and so I just wanted to when I was struggling with like the second life implosion I just thought there must be other I was thinking of women and in particular must be other women whose lives have imploded for different reasons and I wanted to know what those reasons were, like, for example, being sent to prison or um, being diagnosed with terminal cancer or, you know, all kinds of like, big things being cyber stalked. Um, like, how on earth did they cope with those things um, and how did they rebuild their lives? Um, so that's what got me thinking. And then, yeah, I kind of put that. So, um, yeah, I put some. Uh, like shout outs on social media and then other people put forward to me the names of uh possible book participants and kind of the book just like it became like a massive project and it took on a journey of its own sorry i'm trying to my phone notifications um yeah it took on a massive journey of its own and it's just been the most like amazing um like life enhancing thing to work on really it's really um it's really made me appreciate the strength, the sort of core strength that um, people have, you know, deep within them to get through really difficult times and to get your head around a really difficult situation. Like to be able to accept and come to terms with the situation, make your peace with it, and it not to send you mad, um, and then to move forward in a different direction and like with that I'm just thinking of things like um like for example a lady who had a really intense three-year affair and then it suddenly ended and she was absolutely devastated because if you uh, and your listeners have ever had like a really 
particular, and I've had this a couple of times, um, like a really intense affair, um, like someone that you can't, you can't even eat or sleep because you, you know, because you're the connection you have, the chemistry you have is so strong. Um, and then, and it kind of takes over your life and your mind. It's not like a normal, it's not like a normal relationship. It's just like I've had both, so I can tell. But that it's the ones where you, you know, when you first meet them, there's like a massive spark and like you have butterflies and, you know, and then you're just like you feel like you're walking on clouds or something because it's like every time you see that person, you're so uplifted. And um, this lady had an affair like that, and it completely—it was like in the middle of a difficult time in her life. And, oh, can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> still there. Uh... I'm, I'm just on a rant. <laughs> well, not a rant. I no, I, but, I, um, yeah, I, was th- I was just thinking, some like people might say, if you have an affair and you come off the worst, you deserve everything you get for having the affair in the first place. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the book is like, I think that's why, that's why I'm like really proud of the book. And I don't feel, I don't mean proud of my work. I mean like proud of these women for like sharing their most vulnerable times knowing that there will be people I mean most of the women in the book are anonymous um like I think it's six or seven of uh my amazing participants aren't anonymous and there are photographs of them and some of them are going to appear at some um I'm going to give some um book reading extracts um at some events and some of the non-anonymous ladies are going to come to and read from their own chapters um but the rest of the participants are anonymous and that's because you know their stories are vulnerable and and in order to tell their stories they have to be anonymous so they can be they can be completely honest about what happened to them but yeah like obviously if you have an affair or cross any kind of moral um code or boundary then there's going to be judgment and you know i think especially like being in italy last week and like talking to melissa because obviously melissa's in my book and melissa works in europe quite a lot with her work and I have to say, Britain is a particularly repressed and judgmental country. We do have really strong judgments. And we're so buttoned up about a lot of things. Um, and you get, like, I have lectures in Italy. And they're so sort of open. And these were academic lectures. But they're so open about things like sex. And, you know, like we were talking about sex and history because it was relevant to what we were learning. And, um, you know, just, a, they're just so much more, like, embracing of all those aspects of life, which in Britain we tend to be a bit kind of like we get a bit panicky about and a bit kind of stressed when we talk about those kind of things and certainly in institutions you know like at the moment you have to be incredibly careful what you say um well just in society generally I think in the UK but I you know I just felt with the book I, a bit like your podcast I just wanted to be like completely open about stuff and I've still had like I've spent a fortune on uh, legal fees to get the book like legally checked because it does cover some topics that are um, you know, they're going to like challenge readers and it also mentions, you know, like the ambulance service, the police, um, other kind of institutions that so I've had to anonymise some details and I've also had to yeah, go through these legal checks. But yeah, yeah, obviously, if you have an affair, then someone could say, well, you deserve everything that comes to you when it goes horribly wrong. And most people expect affairs to go horribly wrong. But I just think everyone's human and we all fuck up. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear. You're allowed to all... swear, yeah, definitely. Definitely allowed to <laughs> swear. All, you know, we all fuck up in one way or another, or we think things that are, are 
are, even if we don't act on them, we or you know, even the most pious, you know, religious or you know, like a sort of respectable person will think things that aren't pure or aren't you know, a sort of good intentions. So all of us have this capacity. Um, some people just happen to act on it sometimes. And I think, you know, I just think human life should be about, yeah, like second chances, about trying to empathise and understand, all of those things. So, yeah, the book's all about, it's about being out of your comfort zone, having huge challenges, things that knock you for six, and then, like, you know, like digging deep into yourself and being, you know, just giving yourself <laughs> talking to and just saying to yourself, come on, you know, I can do this, I can get through this, and then moving forward, and then having a brilliant life afterwards. And sometimes that's not always possible for different reasons, but you try, the mindset is there that you try, you try to you try to get through and move on. I suppose we all learn. So life is about learning and learning from your mistakes and treating people better. So everything's a learning curve. So maybe some good can come out of things that don't seem to be good at the time if that makes sense yeah absolutely I think certainly things like um so I've got this amazing woman called um her, well her poetry name so I'm going to call her by her poetry name um, and she was actually on BBC uh radio four yesterday on women's hour I just happened to like catch a bit of her and I didn't know she was going to be on it actually so I just like happened to turn on my car and it just like flipped up and um, I was like, oh my God, it's Lady Unchained. And so Lady Unchained um, is in my book and she was, um, you know, in her very early 20s and got into a fight in a nightclub in London. And I think I sent you a little bit of her chapter. Um, and she, she was a good gospel girl. You know, she'd been at gospel church that morning uh, for hours and um, her sister wanted to go clubbing and, they, and uh, Lady Unchained felt a bit, kind of uncomfortable it's that whole dichotomy of like you're a good girl in church one minute and then the next minute you're kind of <laughs> going crazy on the dance floor so but she did they did go clubbing and um then um there was a fight so her sister was set upon by some girls and lady unchained ended up you know in the heat of the moment with alcohol with um you know that desire to protect a family member who was you know, being like set upon. I think everyone can identify with that. Um, and basically, you know, bad fight ensued and it ultimately ended up in her being uh, arrested and going to prison because the fight had just gone too far. Um, and I do, I discussed... In what sense did the fight go too far? I think probably, um, well, she was um, charged with GBH. Right. Um but I also think, and this comes out in the story, she's experienced a lot of racism. And I think that had she been a white woman, a young white woman, I think she would have been given a caution. I think there's certain, and in her prison experience, um, she was in, I think it's three or four different prisons. Sorry, I've taken so many interviews, like over 100. No, that's fine. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to remember all the details. But um, she was in three or four different prisons, and in one of them particularly, she encountered, um, you know, really severe racism, and she was always being threatened with deportation, um, even though she was, you know, she's always legally been in the UK. So threatening deportation is terrifying because it's like me being sent to live on the moon or something. You know, you don't 
don't know anyone else you'd be completely sort of guillotined from your life and your family and your friends here so that threat was hanging over her all the time and that was uttered by uh, people you know like a, a particular prison officer who had the power potentially to make deportation happen so it was like she was it was sort of um very threatening for her intimidating for her so that was racism used in a different manner um but she you know she had to cope with that and you know she was like she'd never ever been in trouble with the police before and um you know and then the next thing she's in prison um and it's like how uh, well what she says about in her story she says about when she's first in prison she felt you know kind of like suicidal and um you know at her lowest ebb um but like now and you know and her story i love her story because she is really honest like she talks about when she first comes out of prison so there's a whole prison experience and all the like all the insights in prison that you would never know about if it wasn't for brave people like her talking about it um but you know when she first came out like coming out of prison is definitely not a bed of roses you know there's because you've been institutionalized for a while how long did she get and then, in, to to um, just if, yeah like anyone's was, wondering yeah i think she was um initially said it could be three to five years and then i think she came out after 14 months um, it must have been pretty serious assault for for like for her to get that there must have been more making it, I mean, I, I, um, some sort of safe stance yeah i haven't read her um like the court notes the judgment um and she's written her own book about it and she talks a lot about it now because she's a social justice reformer so she works with uh prisons um making the prison system better and obviously especially if you're um you know if you experience race issues in prison so she's very much an advocate of um equity in prison for everyone and also she speaks in schools um and you know like universities and things um, and she speaks like obviously nationally on bbc and things about you know about her experiences about how to try and avoid those situations so i'm not 100 percent sure of quite all the details of her case but it was i think it was uh probably 50 percent of one or half a dozen of one and six <laughs> what's that saying you know six to one half a dozen of the other i think it was a case of it was a bad fight but i do think from everything i know and have read about her case uh, talking to her that it was there was definitely an element of racism in giving her a harsher penalty for what happened and um yeah she's very i mean she's entirely contrite for what happened and she's very humble she's just the most incredible woman and she's not only does she work with prisons and has owned her narrative for the greater good to help other people and other people to avoid getting into the situation she got herself into but she's also an incredible poet as well so she kind of uses it's like rap poetry and she writes about prison and her experiences through the medium of poetry and her you have poems to do you have to, to get her to come on my podcast? Oh, I'd love to. She, she's she's just so, she's got such an energy about her. I, I absolutely love her. We haven't actually met in person. We've talked loads. And um, I will definitely be meeting her. And I think that's what I love about the book. It's like 
these experiences, so I've, you know, like the age range of women in the book is between 21 and um, 76, I think is my eldest lady. And also they um, cross all, you know, walks of life, everything, um, all classes. It's just women's stories across the board and they're surprised, you know, they're surprising. And I love all of the women that are in the book. I, I just think they're, they're amazing and they're really brave. Just like going back to the story that we've just been talking about, um, and we earlier said about some good comes out of bad situation. It sounds like this is an example. She's gone to prison, um, but she's come out and she's talking to, she's going to schools, she's talking on the radio, she's doing her poetry, she's talking around the country. So to me, that could be a good thing coming out of a bad thing. Yeah, I think it's about, obviously, no one sort of in their right mind would choose to go to prison. And like, that's the same for lots of the um, stories in the book. And also I think in, in people's lives, often the things where life goes horribly wrong for you, you wouldn't choose for that, you know, that episode to happen to you or for like a cancer diagnosis to happen to you. But then it's just like, you either sink or swim, don't you? And you either kind of like give up and like, you know sort of just like your life is over or like something just clicks in your head and you're just like well I, I have to make the best of this situation and I do think a lot of it is about owning your narrative and you've dropped out again there sorry um I was just saying I really like um a journalist called John Ronson right and um can you hear yeah, and he wrote a book about, um, oh, to do with like shame. Uh, so I think it's called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and he did a podcast about it. I think it's like those kind of things, like those aspects of life, like you can be judged, you can feel shame and things. And then it's actually, you can, like, you can subvert that. You can be like, well, no, I'm not going to be shamed. I've done something, um, you know, I've done something that's fallen outside the boundaries, but. Like, I'm sorry about it and I'm going to use it for the positive. I'm going to own my narrative and I'm going to turn my life around using what I've learnt for the better and to help other people. And I think that's what she's done. And yeah, she's just like, I'm incredibly inspired by her. She's amazing. Yeah, I've got a book on by him, like John Ronson. I think it's about conspiracies. He um, like, did the book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, about MK Ultra and that. Yeah, I haven't read that one because I, I don't know like all of John's stuff, but um, yeah, I just like, and I like his accent, <laughs> so I like listening to him, but I just think he's like really bright as well. Yeah, yeah, he like, did that book where he like, Men It Stare at Goats, MK Ultra, where like the like, CIA did a, okay. a study and like that relates to Stranger Things, or Stranger Things, because Stranger Things is based on truth. The first oh. series was what happened in a place called Montauk. I think it's in New York. It's a, it's like an Air Force base, and apparently right. they experimented with time travel, different portals, and like they got that chair, um, psychic abilities, remote viewing, yeah. etc. I do find all of that like really. Sorry, I'm gonna try not to get on a tangent. But I no, think, do it, do it. I do, find, <laughs> I do find all of that stuff like really interesting because it's like, um, like even things like tarot. So I had like, th I think three stories in the book and one of them sadly had to go yeah because I've interviewed like over 100 women for this book and it's taken me to all kinds of crazy situations <laughs> places but I can't remember if I told you in my emails but um 
yeah, like I've been to, well, I don't kind of know what I can get into on the podcast, but it's definitely in my book because uh, the introduction to the book is like 30 pages long and 18 pages of those are all about sex and it's all things that women wanted to tell me about their sex lives and, and things like their experiences of using, you know, like Tinder and Bumble and Hinge and, um, and how men and women like interact on those apps and things like the silent treatment. So like, um, sorry, this is, <laughs> I was going to talk about tarot then. I will come back to tarot in a minute because tarot definitely proves to, it's definitely got some power in it, but I'll come back to that in a second. Um, and that's, uh, speaking from someone who's like a complete skeptic about all of that <laughs> stuff. I was raised to be like that. Um, no, um, going back to the, the sex stuff, because everybody's always wants to know about that. It's like Melissa's chapter in my book, uh, which is about her first husband's suicide. Um, but also she's got she's got her own chapter about her life as a vintage dominatrix, because my, my God, it's just like when she first started talking about that. <laughs> I think my eyes like popped out. <laughs> I don't like the chicken story, <laughs> tea story. And there were all these like crazy... Oh my god! Like just thinking about that now, the crazy story she told me. Well, I'm, I'm like saying the dominator, like, like the dominatrix. Crazy. Sorry, God, I was just going to say that we've had a dominatrix on our podcast before, and she's got a customer yeah. that uh, likes to be tied to a chair and force-fed dog shit. <laughs> it's just like um, people kinks are unbelievable, and like when she's telling me about the different dungeons and like the dungeons with like a mock operating theatre and then a boxing ring and oh like there was another I'm trying to think of the other one as well and then all of this oh this amazing <laughs> amazing like interest it's just really interesting to, I just find it fascinating because it's like my god like these, these people like we probably work with them every day and we just have no idea they've got these other sides of their lives and I think so many people definitely from doing the book my god I just realized like so many women are um in marriages or like long relationships where like the intimacy died a death like years ago and they but they they don't feel that they can leave it becomes like something they never talk about and they're still married like eight well can you hear me like for 20 years and like no sex scene of those years um had a family you know had children but then nothing afterwards and and she just like feels hollow because she feels like a massive part of her life that everybody assumes she's having. She's not, but she like she doesn't want an affair, you know. And it's just like you feel like you're living. If you know, for most people, that is quite a big part of their life or an important part of their life, even if it doesn't happen very often. But they don't want to think that part of their life has died. But for lots of women, in the interviews, it came out that lots of women are in relationships where there's literally no intimacy at all um but they don't want it to be like that but then it becomes this unspoken like kind of almost like a dark secret because it becomes quite toxic it causes resentment and bitterness and um and then it causes like if it's not talked about and you're sorry i've gone off on a tangent it's such a big big theme and that's why i had to write like 18 pages all about this stuff in the introduction and it's also documented in some of the chapters. But um, like for some women, like for some women, their husbands uh, or partners just wouldn't go anywhere near them, but wouldn't say why. So they didn't know whether it's because of like, you know, physical problems that the husbands were experiencing or whether it was because of, you know, the husbands might be having an affair or they were like really stressed with work or, you know, you just, what, when... Could it be... 
could it be something like the Madonna and the horse syndrome? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that when you have children, that's such a massive shift in a relationship and also in a woman's um, identity. So in terms of how a woman perceives herself and kind of, and I, I can talk about this personally as well, having had, you know, three children and, you know, I've got like a big group of girlfriends who some are mums and some aren't. Yeah, and I'm completely pro, like, however you want to live your life. Like, motherhood definitely isn't the be-all and end-all. And there are many ways to live your life as the woman be completely equally fulfilled in different ways. But I know, I do know that, like, when you have children, it's almost like something happens overnight where you just kind of, like, switch into that kind of, almost like, um, like a kind of Mother Teresa mode where you go into, you know, like a nurturing, or a nurturing mother mode. And, but that doesn't mean you you don't stop wanting everything else, but you don't stop wanting the Madonna horse, you know, that you, you don't stop wanting the whole package. But I think you feel like you have to be this amazing mother. And then, you know, and generally quite often women are mothers are working as well as working mothers. And then, you know, there's all the domestic stuff. And when you're living with someone like 24-7, you know, albeit you're out work and stuff, but, you know, it's hard to, like, keep that side of life going when you're just knackered, you know, and you've got young children, you're juggling, you know, bills and sometimes money stresses and work pressures. And, you know, and I, yeah, I definitely think a lot of women kind of morph out of feeling sexy. And then also, like, if their partners are sort of not interested, um, you know, and that comes up a lot. Like, the, yeah, just the amount of men and women who you think are, like, having amazing sex and they're just literally not. Um, and but they it's just not talked about so then it becomes this toxic part of a relationship because it's like the big <laughs> this is like a completely inapt metaphor <laughs> um, it's like the elephant in the room that causes a lot of problems and and ultimately and what happens what's happened in some of the book chapters is when that need to feel wanted and desired is not met within a relationship uh, especially a long-term relationship then it means that both of you in that couple, or, you know, or sort of mum and dad in the family, are susceptible and vulnerable to the attention of someone else. So if someone else comes along and makes you feel desirable, even if you don't find them attractive, this is what happened in one of the stories. Um, the guy that popped up into the life of one of my book participants, she, you know, she wasn't drawn to him. She was, she didn't find him attractive. But the attention he paid her regularly just kickstarted something in her. And like after years of feeling completely overlooked and neglected and, you know, feeling invisible. And this is like a professional woman. She's a doctor, um, you know, busy life with like three children, married to another professional, um, lived in a bu busy city. But just like really, really feeling sort of devastated that no one was interested in her anymore and then all of a sudden this um another dad started showing her attention and um before she knew it she'd fallen you know head over heels for him and they started having this really passionate affair so it can begin with the person you know you don't have to have butterflies uh with the person that it happens with it can just be someone paying you attention at a time in your life where you feel vulnerable and lonely 
and you know and then it, things can develop very quickly that's why I'll never be judgmental about any of these situations because people often don't look for these things to happen um, they just they just come up in our lives when we're feeling vulnerable um, but then they become like huge support mechanisms and we you know latch on to them and it's just so nice to have someone that makes you feel special and wanted and desired and our brains very quickly lap into those sort of endorphin highs from that mm. so yeah <laughs> yeah de de yeah definitely when like when does the book come out yeah so it should be ready <clears throat> so my first print run is small and that's because I've had to fund it all myself <laughs> I'm literally using at the last of my savings and even a bit of my student loan um, because the reason I'm, pu I'm uh, publishing it myself is because if I go through any uh, main publisher, even through an agent, they um, have the right to edit it. And because the stories are so personal and vulnerable, um, and lots of the nuance of the story is in the tiny, tiny details. And also because I feel I have um, like a like an emotional uh, link to all of these women, I don't feel I can hand over their stories to a third party to be edited because those people don't know the women, whereas I do. So I feel like I have to be in charge of the whole process, really. You want to so put the book out as the entirety as it's meant to be. You don't want a third party coming along and taking certain bits out because every part of the book is integral to each person's story. Yeah, and like I, I think like um, some of the bits about sex are quite um, explicit, and then some of the bits about suicide and uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not a it's not a gloomy read at all. It's completely the opposite. So although I'm mentioning like suicide and things, it's actually this this book is a toolkit to help help anyone cope with any difficult situation in life, and that's men and women. But yeah, like the bits about suicide, some of the details. Graphic. Um, so I, someone else coming in and saying, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm not sure about that. I'd like that to be sort of edited out or something." I, I just thought, you know, when I was younger, I was much, I was a doormat. <laughs> I was a bit of a wet wipe, and then I still got that capacity, but I'm definitely a bit tougher now, and I'm able to be more assertive. So when it comes to my book, I've like stuck to my guns, and that has to be like has to be these women's stories and they're being told the way the women wanted them to be told definitely yeah. so um yeah so it's a small print run at first and then with the money and i'll take a loss at first financially but then with the money that i get from the sale of those books and i've already they're literally all spoken for the first print run so that's the end of august um then i'll get the next print run done and i'll keep doing it like that until hopefully i'll get picked up by a mainstream publisher but it will also be available to buy on Amazon and Kindle so people can buy it you know before they can get a printed copy they can buy it and read it online but yeah it's um it's seriously deep it's very gritty it's very positive um every chapter sorry I know you probably need to end this podcast in a minute no no um, every chapter um at the end of every chapter there's three questions I ask the, all of the women and it's like what have your experiences taught you advise other women going through similar experiences and also where are you now in your life 
and um, you know what are your future plans and I think and like oh I just have to mention like a lady called Chantelle she's uh, non-anonymous and um, she's in Bristol and so she was diagnosed during lockdown with a brain tumour and it's a brain tumour that because there are 120 different types of brain tumour and she Chantelle's in her early 40s she's got two daughters she's a teaching assistant and she's married to a lovely guy um and um yeah yeah she just had some really uh, bad epileptic fits uh one night uh in may uh 2020 and she didn't suffer from epilepsy but yeah a brain tumour was diagnosed and her particular type is one that uh initially it's benign but it will keep growing and it's likely to come back as cancerous at some point um so she has to have regular scans so when they when the surgeon removed it they can remove all of it so she's still got some of it in her brain and she immediately had to have her driving license removed because you're not allowed to drive in case you start having fits again so she's on heavy medication but oh god rick she is incredible because like despite all the physical changes the massive life changes she's had she's um <laughs> she's done a skydive or she's doing a skydive in september for the brain tumor um support charity and she's terrified of heights but she, i'd do it with her but i'm, <laughs> I'm actually booked to go on a clubbing weekend that weekend um in london but i'll do the next one with her and i'm terrified of heights too but i just like have to support her because i just think she's amazing yeah she's terrified of heights but she's doing this uh, skydive to raise money and awareness for brain tumor charities because it's one of brain tumors are one of the least funded areas of cancer research um she also ran and i'm not advocating that anyone undergoing chemo should run a, ma a half marathon but it was just something she needed to do for herself even though she really struggled with the training but it was just like her life kind of fell apart when she had the diagnosis um and so she, for her she just had to think about crazy things to do to try and cope with her diagnosis and so she's she's living her best life now even though she's still got the brain tumor in her brain a little bit and it's scanned regularly so at the moment she's sort of touch with she's in a really good place and everything's looking good and okay and she's working again not as a ta but doing something different but she and she's just been away with her girlfriends to um, I think they went to Cannes. <laughs> so she's like living her best life. But she's but she's doing so much to raise awareness and money for brain tumours. So like that's a really I mean my God, it's like sad, it's traumatic, but she's so positive. So and she in her chapter she talks honestly about, about the physical stuff, like the chemo cycles and things. But then she also talks like her love of life is magnified and um and her outlook for the future is so positive despite everything so like when I'm having a bit of a day or I'm stressing about a bill or something I'm like oh I just think of Chantel and you know like I can't help but just be like inspired by her definitely yeah well it certainly wouldn't make you have a different perspective and like different outlook on in life getting a big sort of um what's the word I'm looking for diagnosis like um that um you did go to Florence did like you spend two yeah. weeks was it like was it two weeks in Florence or was it one week in Florence oh I think yeah I'll talk really quickly like just tell me when you want to go <laughs> no no you know no, that's fine <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so my pH, it just really, I'll just like really summarise quickly what I'm doing at uni guys. Oh, I absolutely love my PhD. So I left school at 16, just really quickly. Uh, that was because of, uh, because of religious re reasons. And, but I, yeah, it was a peak and I kind of knew that I needed like, for my like break, <laughs> otherwise I'd go a bit insane. I knew that I needed to like get back and like do some deep study, like challenge my brain at some point. So like my, uh, I did do some like, uh, Oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. So initially, like in my 20s, I was working as a legal secretary and I had like two of my three daughters then. And I was a, um, I did like a, uh, was trained to be a legal exec at first. Like, so through, I didn't do A-levels, but I did like, uh, kind of like, a bit like an access course. So I did like other courses to sort of act as the equivalent of A-levels, uh, sometimes through evening class or like one day a week. Um, and I juggled that with the girls and working as a legal secretary my 20s and yeah I did I think it was an HMD in legal practice or something um so kind of did it all like back to front um and then I got to like 30 <laughs> and like one of the lawyers I worked for um he was like such a such a pompous <laughs> git and he like clicked his fingers at me one day to like make him a cup of coffee and I just thought oh you're such an arse and <laughs> I was just like I'm done with this because I think the problem is sometimes like one of the things I think about education is yeah higher education getting a degree and everything is definitely isn't a be all and end all like my brother for example didn't go to uni and he's like really practical in loads of other ways and has like a really good career um, so, and I've got like friends who are like amazing carpenters and electricians and all that kind of stuff, or like artists. So yeah, like you don't have to go to uni at all. It's like what you do, what works for you. And like some people are amazing business people, aren't they, without having gone to uni or anything. But I can, like having not had a degree and then having got a degree and like further stuff now, like for me personally, it's been like a massive life changer. And I think one of the problems I realised, like if you don't have the degree or some kind of uh, equivalent like skill or qualification that other people treat you as like a lesser person so when I was in that environment and that lawyer clicked his fingers at me it was because he saw me as a, like there was a disparity there between us so I was just yeah and I remember being referred to as like a, like just like a ditzy secretary and like I hated that because obviously I wasn't and I think you know loads of people in admin jobs or loads of waitresses or cleaners or all of these jobs you know, they're not super people doing most jobs. They're often like super bright. They're often like amazing musicians or, you know, like um, just like amazing artists or something in their private lives. But people have an assumption that if you do a particular job that you're not intellectually switched on so much. So like I hated that and I just got to 30 and I just thought, fuck this, <laughs> I'm going to uni. So um, yeah, I applied and um, yeah I got into Bristol Uni and like Bristol sometimes um, come up in the news and things because there's been episodes of our students who felt a lot of pressure there but I think like if you look at all of the universities all of them have similar um, that I think universities can be pressurised education can be pressurised and um, so I think all universities have some students who um, you know struggle during the process but but for me personally, Bristol University has been the most amazing like institution to learn at ever. I've been fully supported. This is my second time studying there now. Absolutely love it. I love all of the staff, the supervisors, professors I work with. Like some of them are lifelong friends now. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm a massive, massive 
advocate for Bristol University. It's the most amazing university <laughs> in the UK. I studied at like Exeter and Oxford as well, and they're brilliant too. Um, yeah, both amazing unis in completely different ways. Um, love them both. Love my experiences at both. Um, Bristol, um, I love Oxford, obviously, for all the history and <laughs> uh, beautiful spires. Library, the Bodleian Library, my God, that's amazing to like walk up those stairs to the top mm. of the Bodleian and study there. You know, like Tolkien and you know all these like great in history have studied there. I was like studying there one day at the top floor of the Bodleian. There was like a massive thunderstorm going on outside. And also, I think because I'd left school at 16, and then I was studying in this place that I never thought I'd be able to study in. And it's got like this very, like, really old, like, 14th century reading room called Duke Humphrey's Library. <laughs> and it's like old stuff. It's just like the most amazing place to study in. And I was like, the thunder was like, you know, like, it, it was like it was lightning and lightning strikes, like, thunder crashing down. It felt a bit like Hogwarts. And I was about like, to say, oh, yeah. it sounds like something of a Dun Brown novel. <laughs> It, well, and literally when I was in Florence last week and we were learning like Renaissance like cryptology codes, which are like the whole damn brand Da Vinci code. And it was literally stuck codes that we used at the time of Leonardo da Vinci. I was like, oh my God, my life is all quite crazy at the moment. But um, yeah, no, that was like, it was amazing studying that. And I'd love to like go back and study at Oxford, but it's just too far from where I live. And I can't move closer to those places at the moment because I need to be around for my youngest daughter because she goes to between her dad and my home uh, that mm. we can share her. So yeah, I need to like live where I live now and commute to all the different places I go to. But Bristol is commutable for me. And it was, yeah, it was so lovely to return to Bristol. And yeah, I absolutely love my supervisors there who are called Kenneth and Rihanna. And they are amazing. They're so bright and they like stretch my mind all the time. <laughs> you realize so like all my shortcomings. Sorry, shall I tell you about my PhD in Venice and Italy? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So basically, my PhD is all about so it's Italian Renaissance women's uh, mental health, their challenges and resilience strategies. So I'm studying women between 1350 and 1650 in Italy during the Renaissance, and the Renaissance because like the Renaissance is like the Kickstarter really of the modern world, I think. Um, and uh, women have been overlooked in Renaissance history. Um, so everyone knows about Michelangelo and yeah, Leonardo da Vinci and all those kind of main white guys, but we don't tend to know much about the women and certainly not women whose voices have been hidden. But I'm looking at, so a bit like my book, I'm looking at women's problems, so like domestic violence, I'm looking at infanticide, infertility, all the ins, <laughs> um, like incest, looking at coping with plague, so constant outbreaks of the plague, like how did they cope with losing, like loads of family members like one lady lost five of her nine children and her husband um how did oh, they yeah. had like financial huge financial stresses there was like infidelity there was um i'm oh, sorry i've already said that infidelity i meant to say they had um like syphilis so they had lots of like um they had lots of disease problems health problems but they had like lots of because it was like quite a passionate society they had they would have outbreaks of um like syphilis for example other stds um, and that caused madness, so that impacts on my studies of mental health. Um, they, they also had, suffered from depression. I think there were early cases of postnatal depression. So I'm looking at the whole picture and there was, um, and, and then trying to like work out like how did they cope? What were their resilient strategies? What could we learn from them today? They had stalking, they had everything. Li yeah, literally mirrors my book. 
um, how did they cope? And then basically what I'm going to do at the end of my research, I'm going to start doing like lecturing, hopefully at Bristol Uni. Um, so I'll be lecturing in history about the Renaissance and also it'll be like gender studies. And, um, and then also I'm going to work with think tanks about how best we can support women's day. Um, so with things like domestic violence and um, infertility and that kind of thing using what I've learned from these women's stories back then and that's through looking at court records and diaries and that kind of thing um, that gives me the evidence that I need and that's why I was in Italy. It sounds like again something good is coming from all the hard work you're gonna start doing your lectures you're prepared to go out and help people is it just women you're prepared to help or is there anything you're gonna do with men because like obviously men <laughs> suffer from des like domestic violence too or is it mainly yeah. um well i'm just i'm just literally thinking about so the case i'm looking at now uh so this is like a uh, renaissance case so and i'll have to go back out to you because trying to so basically at the moment i with my PhD so far like i'm learning italian but my italian isn't good enough to uh, translate documents from the italian archives at the moment so in italy there are kind of like oh my god there are thousands of archives and um, basically, as you get further into your PhD, you can't really rely fully or you can't rely solely on using the already translated works of other academics. You have to translate your own. So you pick your own fresh um, archives. And so they're like hidden papers that no one else has worked on before. So that's where I need to get to. Um, so I've just started that process of like registering at the archives. You have to do it in person. You can't just do it online from England. So that was partly why I was over in those three cities um, and I'll need to go back. But yeah, the case I'm looking at at the moment, just yeah, because I know you probably need to wrap up, so I'll finish on this one. There's um, okay. a lady called Costanza Bonarelli and her case when I first came came across it and it was because I was looking at an artist called Artemisia Gentileschi who's more well known and her work was exhibited at the National Gallery uh, in London a couple of years ago and she experienced a really bad rape but she was also, Artemisia did, but she was also an incredible painter and um, her life story is absolutely fascinating but yeah um, so I was looking at Artemisia's story and through her I arrived at Costanza and she's not so well known because her story has been hidden in history um, I think she was like an art dealer, but I'm not 100% sure. She was a noblewoman. And um, yeah, basically her story's been hidden and I need to go to the archives in, I know there's an archive in the Vatican and also in Florence. And I think there might be one in Lucca uh, near Florence where I can find out more about Costanza. But basically her story is she was married to a sculptor who was an apprentice of like the Pope's favourite sculptor. So he was a man called Gian Bernini. Um, in Rome and um, uh, Costanza had an affair so she was married she had an affair with her husband's boss effectively so they were with Gian Bernini and um, he was by all accounts like a really decent bloke and like an amazing sculptor but he had lived a good life he was a very like genuinely good man um, but he complete and this is the whole thing about that whole butterfly effect of when you fall like almost like obsessively in love with somebody um, she had this affair with him and it lasted I think it was about two years and he was head over heels with her and really obsessional about her and um, he carved her you can 
to see what she looks like because he carved a private marble bust of her face and it's just the top of her shoulders and it was just for his eyes only wow and you can go and see it in the Bargello Museum in Florence so I did and I've been I'm going to post about it later on today on my Instagram um but um yeah because after things ended really badly he was wanting to get rid of this marble bust because he didn't want to be reminded of her but basically what happened was so Constance was married to his apprentice but then she was having an affair with him Jean Bernini the sculptor and then rumors got to Bernini that Costanza was also seeing his brother and so one day Bernini so Gian Bernini um sort of like hid outside Costanza's home and he saw his brother coming out of her home and she came into the door to kind of say goodbye to his brother and she was kind of disheveled and it was clear that you know it looked like they'd just been to bed together and um she went back inside the house and um he like Bernini sat upon his brother like you know beat him up broke two of his ribs um and then in that fit of impetuous anger he got Bernini um ordered a servant of his to basically he presented the servant with uh, two flasks of wine and he gave him also a razor and uh, this is just in the archives that I was reading yesterday that I've managed to get hold of, but it's not enough for me. I need to get more. Um, basically, he told the servant to go to Costanza's home, uh, knock on the door to give her the wine to act as a distraction. And then while she was distracted by, you know, just like having the wine passed over to her, um, that the servant would slash her face with a razor and to disfigure her um, and as a you know, form of revenge. And that's what happened. And it's just such a devastating story for all, you know, for all of them. Um, and I want to find out what happened to Costanza afterwards, because I know she lived on afterwards. I don't know whether her husband stayed with her. Um, I know that Bernini, um, he was pardoned by the Pope because the Pope, I think, I don't think it's just because it was, because these things are complicated. I don't think it's, I think it'd be easy for women today to sort of get on a, you know, again, a very judgmental sort of position here because obviously bias is always, always wrong. I'm trying to like look behind everything. Mm. I think the Pope felt that Bernini had acted completely out character, but also there was a self-interest for the Pope because he liked Bernini as a sculptor. So Bernini got off kind of like completely scot-free and um, he was pardoned. And the man that attacked Costanza, he was exiled, but he was never actually, that was never actually carried out. And I just really, you know, feel so much for Costanza because it's like, what happened to her afterwards? Like, what kind of life did she have? Um, I wonder, you know, like you hear about, um, I've always sort of like admired so much like Katie Piper, who has attacked, you know, had the acid attack. Yes. And then she's, you know, she's, spoke, she's done such a lot of work for, in so many different ways after that attack. And so I wonder what whether Costanza, because I don't think she stayed out of the public eye, but I, because because the men back then were so prominent, like her story has been lost a bit. So I really want to hear her voice. But yeah, it's like slightly digressing, but I feel it's like slightly linked. Yeah, I am really interested in men's stories and women's stories, 
it's just stories of human life. So I think long term, I'd really like to do a male, maybe if we end on this, I'd really like to do a male version of my book implosion. But I need men to come forward to me with their true stories of their lives imploding. And I have said about this on social media, but but no man has come forward to me yet. I think men are much more reluctant to share their you know, they're vulnerable tales. Yeah, so definitely. Maybe we could just end if any, if any guy ha- has a story out there of his life imploding, um, but maybe how he was able to like reshape his life afterwards that he feels he can share. And it can be anonymously or non-anonymously. And also just to say that all book participants always get 1% of the royalties of the book and it would be more if I like have more money <laughs> but it's cost me an absolute fortune to produce it and, and you have to pay commission to bookshops and everything it's huge yes yes that's it yeah it's I've, not all yours I've, just, I've, li- <laughs> I've literally all I'm hoping to do is literally just cover my costs and um and just like be able to give something back to these women and get the book out there basically I'm not expecting to like make anything from it it's just that I feel it the stories need to be told so any men participating would yeah they get the same they get one percent of net royalties so what but they that, all yeah sorry go on, go on. <laughs> i was just gonna say they will also know that in sharing their stories they're like helping so many other guys and yeah in terms of men suffering domestic violence yeah obviously yeah lots of men go through that too but again it's like a societal like dark hidden secret isn't it yeah so if someone because like you did say you're doing a small print run when will people go on or when will people be able to go on Amazon should I say and actually buy a physical copy of your book when it's available because I'd want a copy then oh. you know, to read it's <laughs> thank you um yeah well I'm hoping um I'm hoping like in uh well end of August beginning of September that's what I'm hoping so there should be like an initial smaller print run kind of like the middle of August um, but I need to have like obviously copy physical copies of books to sell um, so I can do like my book readings where there'll be books available to buy and I've got some independent bookshops that are going to stock them um, and things so yeah so there will be books you, like physical copies of books you can buy from like the end of September beginning of September but it might just be a case that each time I do print run it's like only 50 books at a time so um, <laughs> I'm just like so I have to start off small because it's the only way I can do it like I'd love to have like a thousand books printed but the costs are huge and just the cost in terms of like setting all the uh, typesetting and you know like I had no idea of that and like graphics and everything like to get you have to pay quite a lot just to get the setup like your first proofs done so like a lot of my budget that I've sort of like ring fence has had to be used for just like doing the like submitting the first kind of proofs so um yeah like I'll, I'll do the runs in like small runs and then every time I get money coming in from the book sales then I can do another print run so yeah so you'll be able to, sorry I'm just like waffling you'll be able to buy like a book a proper book like either through Amazon or like a you know a hard or paperback copy of the book from like the end of August beginning of September brilliant stuff and if people wanted to follow your adventures because you did mention you're on instagram can people follow you on instagram yeah absolutely so my um instagram um, handle whatever it is is lindsay bauer eight so it's l-i-n-d-s-e-y-b-a-u-e-r and then it's number eight and yeah i post literally all kinds of weird and wonderful shit on there so like if anyone's easily offended 
because sometimes they're like life drawing sketches and things like I'm sorry but you know just don't follow me but otherwise like there's all kinds of weird and wonderful bits on that and lots of book extracts and PhD stuff and just like all kinds of life stuff on there so yeah if you if you feel so inclined then just like take a peek I will do. I am looking at it now. I'll put everything in the details below. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. You're more than welcome to come back on and talk about your book at the back end of August or yeah. anything else. It's a, it's an open podcast, so anyone from anywhere can come on. It's all free speech. It's all unedited. So all you've got to do is drop an email um, to us and like we'll get people on the podcast. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think I certainly think like quite a few of my book ladies would like to come on and talk to you. And yeah, and I want to say like, uh, just in terms of the book, just like finally, like everything I've covered in the book. So like, I'm completely non-judgmental about anything. So and like everything I've talked about in the podcast. So like, I don't have like, I just like to embrace everyone's stories. And yeah, and just like reiterate when I talked about gender earlier, I'm completely like, um, completely supportive of everyone's right to choose who they are as people like whatever gender they want to be and yeah and um, and also just to say I said this earlier to you when we first got talking but it wasn't being recorded but you have a lovely accent like at Robbie Williams <laughs> so I like I like a Mancunian accent so it's you're not cool. the first one to <laughs> say that it. I like sound like I'm from Manchester to be fair <laughs> oh are you so. not from are you not from Manchester no oh where are you from Cleethorpes. So. Oh, it's a cool, it's a cool accent. Oh, thank you ever so much for that. Cheered me up. You're welcome. <laughs> well, thank <laughs> so much. No, thank you for coming on and sort of. It's took a while to get you on because of like sort of sort of bits and bobs, but we got you on at half past eight on a Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I've like I actually dodged um a sea swim for you this morning so you're very honoured <laughs> brilliant stuff yeah I've been seeing on your um in like sort of Instagram you posted about St Ives up there yeah I, yeah, I went that. went to St Ives a couple of years ago and we stayed at a place above St Ives just across the bay uh, and it was like a cottage like clucking out and like the water was pristine so yeah it's a beautiful place Cornwall beautiful place yeah, it's gorgeous because I swim there and then, yeah, because I grew up in Greenwood, but just like I swim, like, so, so the place I swim the most is like in Devon uh, with my little swim crew that we all sort of like formed during lockdown because I was training for a triathlon. So, oh, like, brilliant. Yeah, the pools are all closed, so I had to get like swimming. So I had to, <laughs> and although I grew up in Cornwall, I was a bit of a wuss with the cold. <laughs> so um, I had to like swim in the sea, but I got kitted out with like, a proper like swim wetsuit and everything and then I just love it and yeah I hate it if I don't go swimming in the sea for like a few weeks so yeah and I've got like a really lovely group of people I swim with we're all like different ages and stuff but there we often have like um you know like fires on the beach and things like night and beers and stuff and it's yeah it's so nice oh, so, yeah, but I, really, I wanted to talk to you so there <laughs> so, we go uh, you're prioritized <laughs> thank you very much well you can maybe fit in a swim now because it's not even 10 until the really hot weather comes yeah <laughs> right yeah no that sounds like a brilliant stuff well thank once again so thank you so much for sort of coming on and you're more than welcome back on again oh brilliant thank you rick and have thank a you day. Yeah, you too. With all the brilliant podcasts. take care oh thank you you too you take care bye-bye bye 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 bye, bye. 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 bye.